Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. You're listening to a brand new message. So whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 is where we're going to start this morning. This is Paul speaking. He says, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. Come on, somebody. That's not the way it is. That's not the way we do things around here. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance to the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I want to call our message this morning. Uh, If you guys have not caught the theme over the last eight weeks, they always start with build. Um, So this message we're going to call build your new life. Build your new life. Can we clap our hands for the Lord? You guys can take a seat. So glad you could be here this morning. Uh, Just honored you took the time to be here. Uh, If you're new, my name's Harrison. If you're not new, welcome home. And if you're new, welcome to your new home, hopefully. So, uh, speaking of new houses, uh, this last week, uh, this November 1st, actually marked um, a significant day uh, in Christie and I and our household. Uh, it marked one year since we've been living in St. Albert. So, we moved to St. Albert last November 1st, and so it's already been a whole year. I don't know about you guys, but like, maybe it's just COVID, but do you guys feel like that last year was like really, really fast? Like, it just feels like time is absolutely flying. Uh, so we've been in the house for a year. And there's something that I said before we moved into the house, after we moved into the house. Uh, there was something that I said that kept confusing people. Uh, I would tell them, well, it's been uh, two weeks or it's been two months or it's been three months since we moved into our new house. Or I'd tell people, we're moving into our new house in three months. In two weeks, whatever it may be. And when I said that, the response that people always gave us was, oh, you guys bought a new house. Like, you're moving into a brand new house. And I was like, well, kind of. Like, it's, it's, it's I mean, our house was built in, in, like, I think 1996 or 97. So it's like 25 years old. But it's new to us. Like, it's new to us. And uh, so it was confusing a lot of people. And I'd say, no, like, it's not a new house. It's an old house, but uh, it's new to us. And what made things even more confusing for people uh, is that when we moved in, we kind of changed the floors. We painted the walls all white. Uh, my wife said that the look we're going for is called boho. And uh, so our house, like, it looks new, but it's, like, it's actually kind of old. And so in order to avoid the confusion, uh, I tell people now that we moved into our brand new old house a year ago just to make things kind of make sense. And so uh, I kind of, this morning, I want to talk about this idea of new, right? This idea of new and and more specifically, how to build a new life. And my purpose in this message, by the end of the morning, I don't want there to be any confusion 
specifically in regards to what new means. Because when it came to my house, like there was kind of some confusion. Is this new? Is this old? When it comes to what it means to build and more specifically have a new life in Christ, a new life in Jesus, my hope is that by the end of today, there will be no confusion. If you guys have been with us, I referenced it. We've been in a series now uh, for seven or eight weeks, uh, all about building. Our theme for this year uh, is just to build, how to build. And every single week, we've looked at different uh, foundations. Uh, we, we literally had a week called Build Your Foundation. We had a week looking at truth. We had a week looking at uh, building your future. And so every single week, what we're doing, because our theme for this year that we think that God has called us, God has called us to build. It's time for us to set down roots. It's time for us to go deeper with the Lord. And so every single week, we've looked at something that God is calling us to build. And so today, we're talking about building your new life. Now, for a lot of us, it's like, Harrison, can we like really build a new life in half an hour? Um, the answer is no. You cannot build a new life. So more than anything, what I want to show us is not even necessarily how to build a new life, but what I want to show us is what it means to have a new life in Jesus. And really what I want us to see more than anything today is that the new life that is in Jesus more than anything else, it is a decision. It's a decision. It's a decision literally to move from death to life. And so um, I'm hoping I can remove any kind of confusion and just really show us what this means to have a new life uh, in Christ. Uh, so can we do that this morning? Yeah. You guys ready to go? Yeah. Amazing. Church online, hope you guys are ready to go. Uh, Ephesians is where we're going to be this morning. And I'll give you guys a little context. Paul uh, is speaking to a group uh, a church um, in Ephesus, and the passage that we're looking at, why it's relevant for us today, is he's specifically answering the question, what does it mean to have a new life? What does it mean to have a new life in Jesus? Now, last week, if you guys were here, anyone here last week? Yeah. Talked about building your future. Uh, I kind of went on this rant that uh, when it comes to following Jesus, the most important thing to understand is the gospel. Like, you need to understand the gospel. You need to understand that Jesus has saved you. You need to understand that you were once in sin, but God has rescued us from the powers of death, from the powers of hell. You guys remember this stuff? You guys can uh, go check it out online if you missed it. Uh, if you're really lazy, uh, I think Kreja made a beautiful clip, like a minute long. Explains the gospel. You can go watch it on Instagram, watch it on Facebook. Um, but once you've experienced the gospel... And I actually think when it comes to experiencing the gospel, it is something that uh, we take for granted. I do not believe just because you have grown up in church or have been in church that you know what the gospel is or that you have experienced it. But once you experience the good news, once you experience the gospel, the question is, what next? What does it look like? And that's kind of where Paul is going in this. He's speaking to a group of Christians that have heard the gospel. They know that Jesus is good. So what next? This is what he says. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So here's the first thing I want you to understand when it comes to having a new life in Jesus. When you begin to have a new life in Jesus, Paul says to the Ephesians, he says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. I want you to understand something. When you begin to follow Jesus, you will always then after begin to develop a no longer. This is important. 
Once you begin to follow Jesus, a part of the new life means I now have a no longer. There are things that I no longer do. Part of the newness that it is to be in Jesus is to actually leave some things behind. When I follow Jesus, some things actually change. When Jesus comes into my life, I'll put it really simple. If I am in Jesus, my life will look different. If I am in Jesus, my life will look different. How do I know that I'm in Christ? My life will look different. Now, this is a hard truth in many senses because for most of us as people, uh, we don't actually want to be different. We don't want to look different. We don't want to stand out. Even people that are extroverted, at the very end of the day, we, we can be outgoing, but none of us want to stand out. We don't want to be different than everyone else. We don't want there to be something distinct in us. And so what happens when we follow Jesus, one of the reasons it is really hard to be a faithful follower of Jesus is because I will begin to develop a no longer. There are things I no longer do. And specifically, the things that I no longer do will make me look different. And one thing I will argue is that if you are following Jesus and there is absolutely nothing in your life that distinguishes you from the people around you, from your neighbors, from your coworkers that do not follow Jesus, perhaps you are not following Jesus. Because the moment I am in Christ, I will begin to look different. Now, different is a very broad word. Right, like, well, like Harrison, what do you mean different? Because like all of us know some different people. Like I know some weird people that do different things. Like, well, like what, what specifically is he talking about? You see, Paul, and maybe you're like saying, well, is he talking like most specifically about behavior? Like is Paul saying in Christ I'm going to behave differently? Now I would say yes, in Christ you will behave differently, but Paul is speaking about something so much deeper than behavior. He's going even deeper. He's speaking about identity. Because here's the thing I want us to understand. How you see yourself will always affect how you behave. Behavior is the surface level. But behavior is always as a result of how you see yourself. Behavior is actually as a result of identity. In other words, the way that I view myself will therefore affect how I act, how I behave how I interact with people. And so what Paul is going to show us in a second is that he's not so much speaking about behavior, although behavior is something. He wants us to go deeper beneath the surface. And so what he says, again, he says, I tell you that you must no longer live like the Gentiles do. You must no longer live like the Gentiles do. So I want to explain this. Now, the book of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus was, was written to a multicultural church. There would have been Jews, um, and there most certainly would have been Gentiles. Now, now, Gentiles is just an ethnic term. Gentile literally means not Jewish. So you have Jews and Gentiles. So a Gentile is a Roman, a Greek, a Canadian. Uh, you guys are Gentiles. When you read the Bible, if you're wondering, where do I fall, you're a Gentile, unless you have Jewish heritage, to which I say shalom. Um, <laughs> So Gentiles just means non-Greek. Everyone follow on that? So what's important in this letter is that the majority of the people that Paul was writing to would have been Gentiles. The majority of people reading this are Gentiles. And so in one sense, what's Paul saying? Paul is saying Gentiles don't live like Gentiles. 
It's kind of odd, right? You could, you could like transliterate it. He's saying, St. Albertans, is that what they're called? <laughs> don't live like St. Albertans. Edmontonians, don't live as the Edmontonians do. Canadians, don't live as the Canadians do. That's kind of a big appeal, right? Gentiles don't live like Gentiles. Now, what you need to understand, and I think it's similar today, but especially at this time, your ethnicity was of the utmost importance. Your ethnicity was the number one marker of your identity. In other words, if you were a Jew, you were proud to be a Jew. If you were a Roman, you had Roman citizenship, you were proud of it. It was a main marker of your identity. In other words, it was intrinsically attached and connected to who you are. And so when Paul says, do not live like the people in the rest of your culture do, that was hard. Do you want to know why that's hard? Because each and every one of us is shaped by culture. We're shaped by culture. In other words, our ethnicity, where we come from, how we are raised, the country that we are born into, the cities that we live, they shape us. Like in, in, in Canada specifically, like English is our native language. right? That's just our native language. I'm assuming you guys all speak English. If you don't, I'm sorry. I'm probably boring you to death. But that's like our native language. And so um, it's native to Canada, right? Meaning it's like it's everywhere. You do not have to go and seek it out. Walk anywhere, you will hear English, right? Does that make sense? So English is a native language. But what I want us to understand is that cultures also have their own language as well. And it's not just language. It's in behavior. It's in morality. It's in how we think. It's in how we behave. And it's how we act. And so what that means is for Canadians... For us in Canada, all we have to do is simply exist, and we will in some way be shaped and formed by the culture that is around us. It's the same thing with families, with ethnicities, people that grow up in ethnic families. You don't have to do anything to catch the culture other than live. Simply by being there, it begins to transfuse inside of you. It becomes a part of who you are. I'll give you guys an example, a funny example, then I'll give you guys like a Canadian example. Um, in church, we're kind of hoping to create a culture, right, that, that transcends this place. And so one of the things that's caught on, and it's never been intentional, uh, but sometimes I say, come on, somebody. <laughs> you guys ever heard that? Yeah. Say it a couple times. I try to say it less these days. Um, I was explaining that to Andrea and Kruger last week. But uh, a lot of people say it now. Right? It's like, come on, somebody. And it just like, kind of becomes like second nature because that's how culture like, uh, just becomes a part of us. Right? You don't have to think about it. It just happens. And so uh, it's funny, though, because like, a lot of times you don't realize like, a subculture that's created until you're exposed to something outside of the subculture. So like, you guys know Kendra from our church? A few people. Uh, she's going to uh, shout out to Kendra if she's watching. Probably doesn't, but um, <laughs> she's going to university now, uh, Trinity in B.C., and she came back here for, for uh, Thanksgiving, and she told us a story. She said, uh, at Trinity, she's like, I always say, come on, somebody. And she's like, my dorm mates and my roommates have never heard that before. And they think it's the weirdest thing and the funniest thing. Uh, but, like, for her, like, she caught that in this culture, and so it became subconsciously a part of her vocabulary. You guys understand what I'm saying? Do you guys have examples? And like, I hope, I hope outside of like, come on, somebody. I hope some, hope some other things catch in church that affect your life. 
But like you guys have friends, right, where you guys talk kind of differently together? Like you talk one way, like at work, right? It's like, hello. I'll get, yeah, I'll get that to you by Monday. One thing I always find funny, um, you guys ever heard hockey guys talk or hockey boys? You guys know what I'm talking about? I love that. It's hilarious. Other than like the F-bombs every three seconds, um, I just love them. Like, hey, bud. Hey, bud, just, ch- just chuck me that puck. Just get passing that puck there, bud. Yeah, that's a great pass, bud. Like, I just, it's, it's hilarious, right? And like, you're around, and no one else knows that? Any hockey people? They got, you got your own language, your own vocabulary. So the thing that's hard about culture, this is the point I'm trying to get. We're shaped by it. Right? It happens subconsciously. I'll tell you, so Canada-wide, um, what's some things that we as Canadians, like it's just, it's, it's inbred into us. <laughs> How's it going, eh? Um, but even like our, our, our how we live, right? Like we're polite, hopefully. COVID's kind of shifting some things. But like there's kind of this idea, right? Like uh, everyone is correct, right? You guys you heard that? Like, we're, we're all right. Every single belief is, is beautiful. Everyone is um, valid. Everything is good. You do you. It's like very Canadian, right? Like, hey, whatever you, I'm, I'm fine with it as long as you're fine. <laughs> and so, like, that's like a Canadian kind of thing that we have. And here's the thing I want us to understand about culture is they come into us maybe subconsciously and or consciously, and they form us. But that does not believe, that does not mean that the things that form us are actually true. Even more so, that does not mean the things that form us are actually good. Can I, can I give you the Canadian example that all beliefs are valid, all beliefs are true? No one actually believes that. I'll give you an example. If I worship Mother Earth, let's just say the beautiful Mother Earth, um, and I'm just really mad about what's happening downtown, and so in the name of Mother Earth, I'm going to go bomb Roger's place. Just extreme example. No one would ever say, well, if that's what you believe, as long as you believe. We don't actually believe that. Does that make sense? So what happens, and and, and that's a a stupid, extreme example, but I believe that every single one of us is shaped by culture. We're shaped by ethnicity. We're shaped by race, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, whatever that thing is for you, whether it's Canadian, whether it's St. Alberton, whether it's, 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 it's brown, Indian people, whatever it may be, Paul is saying, do not live as the Gentiles do. Do not be shaped as the Gentiles are shaped. Now, the reason that this is really hard, I said it's hard to be different. It's hard to stand out. Because at the end of the day, especially when it comes to cultural things, culture moves fast in one direction. And Jesus often calls us in the other direction. He calls us to go against culture. He calls us to create a distinct counterculture. And so one of the things that you will realize, and why I always encourage people to read their Bible, a part of having a new life in Christ is new disciplines. We've talked a lot about that. A new discipline you can have in Christ is to read the Bible. And I guarantee you this, as you begin to read the words of Jesus, the words of the New Testament, you're going to read things. They're going to come in direct contrast to what culture says is true. And so now I have a decision to make. Well, Paul kind of makes it for us. He says, do not live as the Gentiles do. And so in one sense, just to understand this, he's not saying that you are no longer a Canadian. He's not saying when you come to Christ, you lose your Canadian (laughs) citizenship. 
Like I was brown before, then I came to Christ, now I'm nothing. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying, he's speaking about identity. Paul is saying your culture is no longer the identity of your life. It is no longer the main marker of your life. Now in Christ, we are being shaped by something different. In Christ, I have a new identity. You could say it like this. In Christ, I have a new loyalty. Listen, it's probably like America is more of a thing, right? We're Canadians. We don't hold so hard to like our Canadian ship. But you have something. You have an identity that you hold tight to. Maybe it is an ethnicity. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a relational status. What Paul is saying, he's saying, in Christ, those things are no longer at the forefront. You have a new identity. You have a new allegiance, and his name is Jesus. And so what this means, super simple, what does it mean to have a new life in Christ? It means I follow Jesus first, and everything else comes second. That's the simplest way to put it. I follow Jesus first, and everything else comes second. So what that means is this. For me, I'm a follower of Jesus first. I'm married, I'm a dad, I'm a pastor, I'm half white. I always shout out the brown side, come on somebody. But in Christ, none of these things can ever supersede him. They all come secondary. And if they do not, and here's the thing I want us to understand, if those things do not come secondary, whatever it may be, whatever you put as the number one marker for your identity you will begin to see the world through that lens. You can write it like this. Your identity is the lens in which you view the world. The reason that I need to put Christ at the center of my life, number one in priority, is not something where he's jealous. I mean, the Bible does kind of say he's a jealous God, but um, it's not because he really just wants you to put him first. It's because he knows that whatever is first in your life, whatever you make your identity in, it will shape how you see the world. Here is a truism. We do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. I actually do not have the ability to see the world as it is. I can only see it as I am. And so what that means is that whatever I put my identity in will shape how I view the world. When the Gentiles put their identity in being a Gentile, it shaped their whole worldview. Last week, I'll give you guys an example. We talked about unforgiveness. You guys remember that? For some people, and it happens usually subconsciously, unforgiveness can literally become your identity. Like, this is just who I am. And so if you carry unforgiveness as the number one identity in your life, guess what? That is how you view the world. And so everyone is against you. Everyone is out to get you. Everyone will one day betray you. And so everything that you see will be through the lens of that which you put your identity in. Does that make sense? So I'll give you a couple cultural things. Culture tells us to put our identities in, and I'll tell you why they're failing. Our culture, I think, says that work is of the utmost importance. Our culture says your worth is found in your work. Grind, hustle, come on, somebody. But here's the thing. Whatever my identity is in, I will inevitably serve that thing. That's why some of us serve unforgiveness. That's why some of us serve bitterness. 
because our identity is in those things. And so if my identity is in my work, I will literally serve my work. And what that means is I will try to get my work to do something it could never, ever do, and that is give you worth. Worth is not found in a position. Worth is not found in a title. Worth is not found in a dollar figure. And so what happens in a world that says you can actually find satisfaction in work, there's a whole bunch of people chasing. And it's like, well, like I, I didn't feel it there, so maybe it's going to happen here. Well, it's not happening here. Maybe it's because I don't make enough. Maybe it's because I don't have enough. And so we grind. Well, maybe like I have an amazing job, but my house isn't big enough. So maybe if I had a bigger house, had a couple of cars, maybe if I had a boat, then I would feel like I'm enough. But you're putting your identity in a thing that cannot satisfy because it is not Christ. And so what Paul would say, he would say, Gentiles don't live as the Gentiles do. Don't live as the Canadians do that find their value and, 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 and worthiness in work. Another thing that our culture does is it puts our worth in relationships, Right? It says, well, hey, once you just, you just need to find the person. Find, find, find your soulmate. Find the person that completes you. You guys are all just a bunch of broken puzzles. Find the piece that completes you. Find your person. And then what happens is we put those things as the number one marker of our identity. Single, it's my identity, it's who I am. And that's fine if you want to be single. If you don't want to be single, it's not very good. Because if you don't want to be single and it's the main marker of your identity, you never feel like you have enough. But here's the worst thing, is that when you find the person and you get together, you move from single to married and that's still your primary identity. But the person that you're married to is actually not what you're looking for. You're not actually looking for someone to complete you. Because the completion that we are looking for is only found in Christ. And there's actually not a person on earth that can fill the gap of your heart. And so what happens is we, have, we, we buy this lie where it's these two broken pieces coming together thinking that we're going to fit like a jigsaw puzzle. But a lot of times they come together and it's just a, still a big hole right in the middle. And so then they turn on their partner because it's like, you, you don't give me what I'm looking for. You don't make me happy anymore. You don't complete me like you once did. Remember our honeymoon? That's when you completed me. I don't know what happened. And so we chase, we chase, and we chase, and we chase. Listen, friends, you can do the same thing with children. Your number, one, your number one marker of identity is not to be a parent. It's just not. Father, mother is not your number one identity. And what happens when you make that your number one identity, you'll begin to idolize your kids. What happens when your kids mess up? What happens when your kids turn 18 and they say, I don't want to hang out? It's like a shot to the heart. Because <laughs> I put my identity in something that can never handle the weight. Because the weight of glory that, 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 that can hold what we are looking for is Jesus. Tim Keller talks about idols of the heart, and he says it like this. Because everything that I said intrinsically is good. Work is good. Marriage is good. Kids are good. But he says the greater the good the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hope. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. That's why we get so twisted. You see, when, when we read, don't live like the Gentiles, do our mind goes to like, yep, let's not have wild orgies. 
Like we don't, we don't want to get drunk. Don't live like the Canadians. But there's so much to, more to it than that. It's the subtle things. It's the small things. It's the small idols of our heart that are actually good things and God things. Romans 1, it puts it like this. It says, they traded the knowledge of God. They traded the knowledge of the good things that God had done, and they began to worship the things of God instead of God. And so it's like, I feel like I'm so close. I think I'm on the right direction, but I'm actually worshiping the wrong thing. Whatever we build our identity in will shape our life. And so a part of the new life in Christ is to put him at the center, to put him at the forefront. And here's the beauty of it. You don't lose any of the things underneath them. They're just put in their proper order. They're put in their proper perspective. And so what that means is that when I work, I can actually view work not as my God, but as a gift. Because I'm not looking for my work to complete me. I'm not looking for work to give me value, to speak to me. It's just a gift from God. Listen, I can have a relationship. I can have a spouse that compliments me and doesn't actually have to complete me. And it'll be so much better that way. Listen, Instagram, come on, somebody. I mean, I think it's of the devil. And the TikTok is even more of the devil. But I'll say this. If Jesus is at the center of your life, and if you have value and, and um, worth that is found in him, like even those social media things that I rip all the time, they can just be a pastime. But for a lot of us, it becomes our lifeline because we're looking for hope in it. We're looking for validation in it. We're looking for worth in it. And so he says, do not live as the Gentiles do. Do not place your identity in those things, but place it in Christ. And he says, this is why. He says, I tell you again, insist in the Lord, do not live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Verse 18, he says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardenings of their heart. This part is huge. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. He says, they've hardened hearts, they've lost all sensitivity, therefore they've given themselves over to sensuality. This is really deep. I know a lot of you guys are like, what the heck is he saying? So I'm going to break it down. You see, one of the reasons we do not follow culture, one of the reasons we cannot put those things at the forefront of our lives is because culture, Paul says, speaking of the Gentiles, he says, they have it all twisted. Here's the thing. It is okay to be shaped by culture, assuming that culture is shaping you into the thing that you need to become. So not all cultures are intrinsically bad. Every culture has good things. But what happens is that many times the things that we let shape us are them themselves not based on anything that is true. That's what Paul is saying. And so what he's saying, why he's saying, don't be like a Gentile. And I think this is so relevant for today. Why that I can't take my cues from culture. He says their hearts have hardened and they've lost all sensitivity. The Greek word literally that Paul uses, he says they are calloused. It's like a scab. You guys know how scabs actually have no feeling? It's just like, oh, wow. 
Paul says they have lost all feeling and therefore they've lost, they've lost sensitivity so they've given themselves over to sensuality. What does that mean? It means because they can't actually feel what is good for them, because they don't actually know what is right, what is true, what is proper, they'll look for anything. Anything that seems true, anything that seems good, anything that seems proper, that's what sensuality is. I just hope it feels good. I just need something that feels good. And here's the issue, though. When I'm calloused, when I'm hardened, when I cannot feel, I don't actually know what is good for me or what is bad for me because I'm hardened. Have you guys ever got your mouth frozen before from, like, dental work? It's like the weirdest feeling ever, right? I'll never forget um, a number of years ago, my cousin, um, he had extensive dental work done, like a whole bunch of teeth pulled, all these kind of things. And so um, his mouth was like literally wired shut for a bit. Um, And so he was on like just a liquid diet. Uh, But he was telling us a story when he came home, uh, his mouth was completely frozen, like not half frozen, but like completely frozen, like literally all the way down, like through his neck. And so he said all he could eat was liquids. um, And so he was just drinking soup. But he said what he didn't realize because everything was frozen. He couldn't feel it. He could not feel how hot the soup was. And so he was just drinking it, chugging it, all these things. And it was only, he said, after all the freezing wore off that he realized he had like second degree burns all through his mouth and in his neck. But what's the principle? If, I'm, if I can't feel something, if I've lost sensitivity... I don't actually know what is good and what is bad. And so I'll kind of just do whatever I think I should. And so Paul is, is, is really casting a big, he's casting shade at culture. He's saying the reason we don't cast, the reason we don't um, build our lives on culture is because they've lost sensitivity. They don't actually know the difference between what is right and wrong. And so what happens is so many of us are shaped by a culture, by a people that don't even know the difference between right and wrong, good or bad, life or death. I'll give you guys an example in the first century that Paul was speaking to. This is kind of funny. Um, for the Gentiles, the Roman people, uh, they had, because again, you've lost sensitivity, so you're kind of just trying to figure things out. So they had this idea uh, that adultery was bad, which is cool. We can agree on that. As Christians, we agree. Like, what's up? Yeah, adultery is bad. Um, but they had a way that they felt was the best way to make sure that no one would have affairs, specifically with other men's wife. Most men would, in their homes, have their wife, but they would have a concubine. They would have a slave, male and or female. And all of these things were really just people outside of their wives that they would have sex with. And if you read Roman literature, they will say one of the reasons you have these people is that you can have sex with them so you don't go and have sex with someone else's wife. This is all good. Just don't have an affair. All the while, they're cheating on their own spouse that they live with. Now, did did that make sense? Did I explain that well? Does it kind of sound nonsensical? It was completely nonsensical. But what happens is once you've lost sensitivity... You indulge in every kind of sensuality. You're kind of just throwing things at the wall. Yeah, I think this sounds good. I think this is right. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And what Paul is saying, and what I want to say today, is that our culture is the exact same today. 
We've lost sensitivity and we cannot even distinguish what is right and what is wrong. I love uh, George Costanza in Seinfeld. He does something he shouldn't have done one time. I mean, he has a line and he says to his boss, he says, was that wrong? Should I not have done that? It's like, I really had no clue. It's like, I got to plead the ignorance on this one. And so our culture, in some sense, is kind of like that. People do not know what is right and what is wrong. And so when we take cues from culture instead of cues from Jesus, we're going to end up confused. And there are people today that try to follow Jesus, but they're confused. Because it's like, wait, I follow Jesus, but Jesus has a whole lot of things that culture says is okay. Maybe I should just follow culture. Paul says the reason we don't follow them is because their hearts are hardened. They're callous. They, they can't feel what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. And so a part of what it means, where I'm going with this, to have a new life in Christ is literally to say, God, give me a new heart. In the book of Ezekiel, there's a prophecy, and he says that I will take their heart of stone, I'll take their calloused heart, and I will give them a heart of flesh. One of the markers that you know that you're living in a new life is that you're actually going to begin to see some of the things that everyone considers normal, and you're going to say, wait a second, I don't think that's actually normal. I don't think that's actually good. I don't think that's actually true. I know everyone says it is, but I don't, I don't think it is. And you can feel like, man, like what's happening to me? Your, your heart's actually becoming softer. The scab is actually beginning to heal. And you're beginning to have skin again. And so what I want to say is this. I know for a lot of us, and maybe we know this, maybe we don't, but I wonder how many of us are hardened. We can't see the goodness that Jesus has for us. We can't see the new life that he has for us. And so we're looking for things. We're just throwing things against the wall. We're indulging in sensuality. I'm just looking for something that will give me a feeling, something that will, that will elicit a response. But Paul says, Ephesians 4, he says, that is not the way of life that you've learned. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's the beauty of what it means to follow Jesus. I get to choose. How do, how do I have a new life? How do I have a new life in Christ? It's so simple. You get to choose. You choose it. You see, one of the things our culture says is that we get to follow our feelings. Just, just follow your feelings. Whatever your feelings take you, just, just go there. And it seems like a form of freedom, but what you need to understand is that is not a form of freedom. That is a form of slavery. And the reason it is slavery is because your feelings, number one, lie to you, your feelings change, and the truth is you are not in control of your feelings. And so to follow your feelings, follow your heart, it sounds so beautiful, it's actually a form of slavery. Freedom is found in choice. And Jesus says, Paul says, in Christ, 
you make the choice to put away your former life and begin a new life in Christ. So you can just write it down like this. It's super easy. The way of life, the new way of life is the decision to follow Jesus. It's the decision to follow Jesus. Can I tell you something? What is the main marker of my new life in Christ? It's that I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And the beauty of Jesus is that he gives us a choice to put off the old and to live in the new. Put on the new. Today, we have a choice. We can put on the new. I want you to understand something. Maybe for some of us, we feel like, I've, I've made the decision. I've, I've made it before. I grew up in church. But I want to ask the question, who, who, who is Lord of your life? Like, what do I, like, who's in charge? Like, are you in charge? Are, are your parents still in charge? Is, is it your friends that are in charge? Is it your feelings that are in charge? And if any of those things are in charge, what that means is they are the Lord of your life. But right now in this moment, we have a decision that we can make to choose to follow Jesus, to choose to put our hope in him, to choose to put our identity in him. One, one of the beautiful things about baptism, water baptism, is that a lot of people think that baptism is like the end of the journey, like it's a choice that I make when I have my life together, when I got things all figured out. No, no, no. Baptism is, is the symbol of the start of the journey. And it's, it's the outward symbol to say, I have made the decision to follow Jesus. I have made the decision to put someone else as Lord of my life. It's no longer going to be me. It's no longer going to be my emotions. It's no longer going to be culture. I am going to let my life be formed by Jesus. And I just, I wonder today if there's people here, and maybe you've been here for a long time, maybe you're brand new, but you've never made that decision to put Jesus at the center, to let Jesus be the person that you follow, Lord of your life, the one that your identity is built in. And so today, let's, let's just stand for a second, church. I wanna, I wanna make this appeal for what it means to live a new life in Christ it's just a decision. For some of us, it is the first. Um, for some of us, it's the 14th, 15th, 16th, 300th time to say, Jesus, I'm just going to follow you. Um, I actually happen to believe it's a decision I make every single day to follow Jesus. Um, but if you've never made that decision, uh, I want to encourage you today is the day. There's no pressure from anyone else. And if you don't want to do it, the beauty is you don't have to do it. But if you want to follow Jesus for the first time, I want to encourage you. Listen, if you've never got baptized, never got water baptized before, you've never made the personal decision, I want to encourage you, today is the day. Or next week, because we don't got water, but today is the day to decide. To say, hey, I want to follow Jesus. I want him to be the Lord of my life. So right now, if you, if you just want to follow Jesus, you want to make that commitment, every head bowed, every eye closed, um, I just want to encourage you. I just want to pray for you. 
And if you could just, just show your hand, you're saying, I just want to commit to Jesus. I just want to follow Jesus. Um, I'd love to, to pray for you. So if you could just show me your hand um, or raise your hand, every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want to follow Jesus. God, I just pray for each and every one of us as we strive to live the new life, as we put off the old and, and step into the new, God, that we can just have um, just your spirit with us, God. I just pray for um, just, just to be filled with your fullness, Jesus, that we can just experience the new life that you have for us, God. Give us the strength to push forward when we don't know what's next, when it's hard, when we have to push back against culture, and let us be shaped by you, Jesus. God, I just pray for every person making that decision today to follow you. Um, God, they just, just walk forward in the light, that they just are filled with your spirit. So God, I just thank you for what you're doing and who you are. I just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Come on, somebody. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We hope that message encouraged and inspired you. If you want more information, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, head over to kingdomchurch.ca. We'd love to connect with you. Until next time, take care.